Well, today we're in Romans chapter 3, continuing on. We are beginning our second portion of the three portions or divisions of chapter 3. We've finished the first portion. We're picking up here in verse 9. I've titled the message, The Guilt of All Men. We are going to attempt to go through verse 9 through 20. I originally was thinking we would only get through 9 and 10, but it all fits together. And so let's see how far we get. If I see you nodding off, uh, then I'll know it'll be time to kind of end it. <laughs> so um, just go like this. So let's get rolling here as we look at our study today. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20, the guilt of all men. Let's read these verses together at verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Very positive message today, as we get in, continue into the righteous judgment of God. But it is a good message, because we must come to repentance before we can accept Christ, and this is what he's bringing us to. So we left off with Paul being charged of slanderously teaching lawlessness. Why? Because he was teaching grace. And they were accusing him of teaching people that if you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can live however you want. This is what they were saying about him and others that were teaching the same thing. They were saying, you're saying you're saved, and it doesn't matter how I live. And of course, Paul's answer is never. May genita, may it never be. And so Paul, we had mentioned last week, will deal with this more in depth in chapter 6. As a preview, we see in Romans 6, 1 and 2, where he says, What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or again, may genita, never. I would never teach that. And he goes on and it says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So what he's essentially saying is, I'm not making that case. You can't say I'm making that case because I'm going to get into it later, which really defends the case here. And it defends us when we preach grace and grace alone through Christ. Just as Paul was falsely accused of teaching lawlessness, many of us who teach God's grace are accused of the same thing. But see, you can only make that accusation against us if that's all we say. 
But that's not all we say. Our defense is just like here in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. No way, not true. That's not what I teach. I teach as Jesus Christ alone. Then your life begins to reflect it. I shared last week that I read a quote recently that was cause for concern. And it simply read this. You have to demonstrate that you are a Christian by the way that you live. And I further mentioned that there are too many you's in that statement. You and you and you. Now, admittedly, I understand the sentiment of it. In reality, though, it can cause some to stumble because you can begin to think, well, I have to show this and I have to show that. But does it always work that way? The Lord deals with us. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is for you, believer. This is for you, Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. What has passed away? Old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So works are out of it. Do you remember the thief on the cross next to Jesus? There were two criminals. But the one I want to point out to you is the one who cried out to Jesus. We see it in Luke 23, 39 through 43. It tells us this story. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, then save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our, do, for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And remember what Jesus said? Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. Now I ask you something. Did this man have time to be baptized? No. Did he have time to show that he was a Christian? No, but I say he was better for it. Why? Because he had no time to develop false securities. He just looked to Christ, and that was it, done. His only security was Jesus Christ. The last security he would ever know, and the only security he would ever need. This is the grace of Jesus Christ. A life of sin just wiped away. Is that not good news? That is great news. This is what we're coming to. See, our actions are a result of our salvation and not the other way around. And we must be careful because we can begin to think that it is the other way around. As we grow through sanctification, the Lord works with us to change us. That's what sanctification means. And we grow in His grace and knowledge of Him. But when we teach this grace, we are accused many times of what we mentioned last week as antinomianism. This is the very thing that Paul was being accused of. I love what one writer says. He writes this, 
Paul was charged with encouraging lawlessness and saying that the more they sinned, the more God's grace would fall down upon them. So I say that it is a very good test of preaching. You see, what is not evangelical preaching is the kind of preaching which says to people, now if you live a good life, if you do not commit certain sins, and if you do good to others, if you become a church member and attend on a regular basis and are busy and active, you'll be a fine Christian and you will go to heaven. That is the opposite of evangelical preaching, he says. And it is not exposed, therefore, to the charge of antinomianism because it is encouraging good works. It is telling men to save themselves by their good works. And it is not the gospel. So, he goes on, let all of us test our preaching, our conversation, our talk with others about the gospel by that particular test. Does it make a certain clever type of man say, I see now the whole position. It does not matter what I do. All is well. And if you do not hate people say that, say that sometimes, if you're not misunderstood and slanderously reported from the standpoint of antinomianism, it is because you do not believe the gospel truly and you do not rightly preach it. Amazing. End quote. Good words. People will say you are reformed. People will say you are teaching eternal security. And they come up with all kinds of labels when all it is is we're teaching the word of God. And at this juncture, at this place, we're teaching this particular section, but we'll get to the rest. You can't just pick and choose. That's why we go through the whole book. See, Paul's point was simply this. Salvation has to be in the heart as he stated in chapter 2, verse 29, it cannot be built upon any false security, and we can't do that today. Stripped everything down, as the hymn writer declared, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Just look to Christ. And so we pick up in verse 9 here. It tells us, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We have been first-hand witnesses, you and I, to the Apostle Paul's arguments, the ones proving that there was a great advantage in being a Jew. It did not mean they were favored over everyone else when it came to God's wrath and salvation. There was and still is a great advantage of being a Jew by having the scriptures, just as it is for you and I today. There's a great advantage of a child being born in a Christian home. They have great advantage, but do they take it? They have advantage to be introduced to Christ, but that very fact does not save you. It doesn't. It's simply an advantage. We all have to make that decision. This not taken, this advantage not taken and appreciated for all it's worth is very simply worthless. That's what he was getting at with these guys. All your advantages, if you don't take them, it's worthless. And we have many advantages today, but many times we don't take them. 
So we're really right back at this great theme of this entire section between 118 and 320. What is that? Well, he says in Romans 118, as we look back for a moment, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The righteous judgment of God. This is the whole thing here. That's what he's talking about. And we're going to begin to sum it up here. Now, real quick, jumping down to verse 19, I want to show you something here because there's a word in verse 19 that really sets the scene. And it says, and all the world may become guilty before God. And it's that word guilty. It's that word guilty that sets up the whole scene. It's an odd word here that Paul uses, and it's the only time in the New Testament that it's used. And it's a legal and forensic term, meaning you're under judgment. It also has the meaning that one has lost the suit. It's over. It's done. You've lost already. And we're going to see what that means. So it really sets up a courtroom scene for us, and it brings everything into view. See, prior to this, the Apostle Paul went to each group separately. Remember we did that? He went to the pagan. He went to the moralist. He went to the religious. It's like this contractor that I know of. He would often work for a contractor as a subcontractor. When they would come as a lawsuit after the main contractor, everybody would be involved. They would go to each one separately but then they would bring them all into court for the arraignment. That's what was happening here. They brought them all into court for an arraignment. So in this courtroom setting, in these verses, we will see these things. And here's the outline for you if you're taking notes. And here's what we hope to get through today. Number one, the arraignment. As we're looking at in verse 9, we'll also look at the indictment verses 10 through 17. And within that indictment, there's the condition, the conversation, and the conduct of all of fallen man. It's the guilt of all men. We'll also look at the motive, what drives this. And we'll also look at the verdict. Everyone guilty. See, everyone was dealt with separately. Now they'll all be brought in together to discuss advantages, mishandled, get them to see guilt. The gospel, it is good news, isn't it? But it's only good news if first we see our conviction of sin. That has to come first. Otherwise, it's not good news. It's whatever news. So guilt must be dealt with first and foremost. Everyone must then know their condition first before there can be repentance. And that doesn't always come with this big thing happening in your life, does it? Sometimes you just think about what the Lord has been telling you. You don't have this big event in your life and you accept Christ that way. What a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful way to accept the Lord as well. 
In fact, I wish everybody did not have, you know, this big testimony that they would come to know Christ very simply, that they wouldn't have to go through anything to be stripped down. Wouldn't that be a blessed way for everybody to come to know Christ? See, just because you have a great testimony doesn't mean that the person that doesn't have a great testimony loves the Lord any less. It's grace. What's your understanding of grace? But you have to understand your condition. It's deep on the inside. See, deep on the inside, everyone knows who they truly are. If you are truly honest with yourself, those things that are going on in your mind, maybe even right now, would you want them up on the screen? No. Maybe some of you would. No, we don't want those up on the screen for everybody to see. That's not our heart's desire. See, we know deep inside there's something wrong. There's guilt. Man, listen to this prayer of this person who understands their guilt. They prayed, Oh, changeless God, under the conviction of your spirit, I learned that the more I do, the worse I am. The more I know, the less I know. The more holiness I have, the more sinful I am. The more I love, the more there is to love. O wretched man that I am, O Lord, I have a wild heart and cannot stand before thee. I am like a bird before a man. How little I love thy truth and ways. I neglect prayer by thinking I have prayed enough and earnestly by knowing thou hast saved my soul. Of all hypocrites, grant that I may not be an evangelical hypocrite who sins more safely because grace abounds, who tells his lusts that Christ's blood cleanses them, who reasons that God cannot cast him into hell for he is saved, who loves evangelical preaching, churches, Christians, but lives an unholy life. My mind is a bucket without a bottom, no spiritual understanding, no desire for the Lord's day, ever learning but never reaching the truth, always at the gospel well, but never holding water. My conscience is without conviction, with nothing to repent of. My will is without power of decision and resolution. My heart is without affection and full of leaks. My memory has no retention, so I forget easily the lessons learned and thy truths seep away. Is that not the heart of somebody who understands their sinfulness? Now that's a heart that God can work with. Ready, shapeable, moldable. But see, we have a heart problem in this world. There is guilt inside of us for things that we have done and things that we do. And the human race likes to think that we are basically good. And it's constantly reinforced over and over. And because guilt is not dealt with correctly, it's not given any resolution. There was a popular advice columnist and psychologist who once wrote these words about guilt. They write, One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercise in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, 
laziness, thoughtfulness, weak flesh or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. And here's the big close and advice. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world. And then the writer went on to another subject. And it leaves you hanging there with no solution. Oh, well, I just try to suppress it then. See, we already talked about what suppression does in chapter 1. See, psychological counseling has proven some success, hasn't it? But only superficially, only temporarily, leaving people feeling good about themselves only temporarily. We are told to place blame on something else or on someone else. It's not our fault. We didn't do anything wrong. That may or may not even be true. But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible tells us we're all guilty. The ancient Roman philosopher Seneca wrote that every guilty person is his own hangman. And it is very true. Because what does guilt lead to? Well, guilt leads to substance abuse sometimes, despair, loneliness, insanity, and many, many times it leads to suicide. And it leads to these things because it's not clearly diagnosed and called out. It's suppressed. See, the reason people feel guilty is because they are guilty. We are guilty. And the quicker we learn that, the quicker we can get to what takes us out of that guilt. Guilt is not all, only the result of something bigger. It's the result of something bigger. It's the real symptom is sin. That's why sin must be put on trial. We must come into conflict with it. And unless sin is removed, the guilt that you and I have tried to suppress over and over will not be removed. This is why he starts with guilt. He goes right to the source. Everything you have is an advantage, but none of it will save you. It is only meant to lead you to the only one who can. And who is that? Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The only remedy. This is why you have so much advantage in the scriptures then and now today. So the arraignment here in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So in the arraignment, there's this formal reading of criminal charges. They are presented to the defendant. And in response, you enter into a plea. But remember, these folks did not want to plea out of court yet. So Paul now brings everybody into court. He has to bring them all in. But what we will eventually see, the verdict is already being made. They don't see that yet, but they will. That's the point. So what then, or rather, what are we to conclude here, Paul says, or therefore? So what is the logical conclusion in conjunction to what I have proven to you already? Are we any better? Are we held in higher esteem when it comes to judgment and salvation? And so you ask yourselves in this verse is, well, who are the we? And there's a debate on who this is and who he's bringing into court here. Something that Paul is referring to his fellow Jews. But remember, he dealt with them already in verses 1 through 8. Others believe he's now bringing into view fellow believers in the church at Rome. 
I think that's a good way. You can look at it both ways, and I think there's a good practice in doing that. I think you can come to some good outcomes in doing that. But it's always a good practice when reading the Scriptures to put who in the Scriptures, to put ourselves in there, to examine ourselves, to x-ray ourselves. This is what Paul does. We. See, he's not only a Jew, he is a believer. So we, it's all of us. And so that changes the outlook of the courtroom, doesn't it? If it includes all of us, the scene must become completely different. Different than anything we've ever seen. Why? Why is that? Because now all in attendance are put on trial. Everybody in the court. Think about who's in the court. The bailiff, the attorneys, people watching, the jury. I mean, think about this court. Would you be sitting there going, hey, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, what am I being accused of? Why are you accusing me? Because you are in all of mankind. You are part of it, just like I'm part of it. So everybody else, all the so-called innocent bystanders examined. And so it helps in our view. So now, are we, us, because we have salvation, because we have the Lord Jesus Christ, are we any better than everybody else? See, you take that view, you begin to look down on other people. But if you remember, we are to esteem the life of another higher than ourselves. Oh man, how humbling is that? We examine ourselves, appreciate their life. Then we will have empathy. Then we will have understanding of what other people are going through and not accusations. So now are we better than everybody else? And he follows up with what? Not at all. In no way. We are not. Now this is not Paul's megenita, or certainly not, or no way. This word means not entirely, not altogether. We're not altogether better than everybody else. Well, why does he use that word? Because as Christians, we have advantage. Salvation through Jesus Christ. So we're not entirely better. We just have a different verdict. We have a different outcome. But does that make us better? Are we preferred over others? No. We are when it comes to advantages. But when it comes to sin, we're all together guilty. For we have previously charged, he says, it was just proven extensively that the Jews have advantages over Gentiles. What God does not give them is preferential treatment as such. Or put this way, in other words, you have every advantage anyone could ask for in salvation because you have the very scriptures that point you to it. That does not make you better. It just holds you more accountable. And if not heeded, it damns you to hell even more and it judges you even further without Christ. So we've already proven that. So now everyone's brought into the courtroom for this arraignment. Now we can come to the indictment, the charges that will be read. The entire human race is put on trial. It is the guilt of all men that is demonstrated. And what's happening in the court through verses 10 through 17, it's as if they're putting a video up in the court and they're watching all of mankind throughout all of time to show you some truths. So Paul, in these verses, 
he gives 13 counts of indictment against the fallen human race. And here's something interesting. He's not giving his opinions of his heart on what he thinks about the human race. What he does here is he looks to the scriptures to point out the fallen state of man. In the indictment, we see the condition, the conversation, and the conduct. And there's no better way to show this than going to God's word. That's why he says in verse 10, as it is written. What Paul is doing here, as we look at these verses, is he's bringing the Old Testament, he's reaching back and he's bringing it forward. He's not choosing them at random. There's an intentional scheme that he has in mind. He is stringing scriptures together to demonstrate the truth of what God thinks about fallen man. And it was a rabbinical style of teaching called a karaz. It's called a karaz. It means a string of pearls. And in essence, Paul is saying, okay, you don't believe me? Let's go to the scriptures. Because Paul already presented powerful testimony to man's sinfulness. He argued it from creation. He argued it from history, from reason and logic, and from conscience. But now he's going to bring the most powerful testimony, the scriptures. No better way. Now, if Paul understands anything, he understands how powerful the word of God is. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So why is the Apostle Paul pulling all these scriptures together into one? Because he's putting together the sharpest, most penetrating, soul-divine, thought-discerning argument to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. Why? To drive every person into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. That's his desire. That should be our desire every time we talk about the gospel driving them into the arms of Jesus Christ. Not caring how they treat you, caring how they treat your Lord. That should be our main concern. That's his desire. As it is written, he goes on, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. This is the indictment, the condition. In verses 10 through 12, we see the fallen state of mankind's condition. And he's quoting from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, and Ecclesiastes 7, 20. And what we have in this statement and in the following verses is the most explicit description of the total depravity of mankind in all Scripture. And you know what's insane about that? Is that they're actually God's words. These are the words, this is the way God views the fallen man. Now, just because God views fallen man in that way, does that mean we too view man in that fallen way? Whose vengeance is it? It's the Lord's vengeance. He tells us to go and tell. So we need to be careful how we take this and we think we're God's defender. 
and we're not God's defender. He, in His time, in His way, which we will get into more next week. But the Bible here, God's Word, He puts us into two categories, doesn't it? Either under sin or we're under grace. That's it. It looks at the whole human race in terms of condition. It does not look at the outward. It does not ask questions like, is he or she a good person? Do they live a good life? Every person is either under sin or under grace. As Lloyd-Jones puts it, in other words, we must also think of ourselves not primarily in terms of actions or of any particular things that are true about us. It is our whole condition that matters. The teaching of the New Testament is put in terms of belonging to a kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the world. That's what he says, and I agree. See, the single most cataclysmic and devastating thing that has ever happened in the world history is the fall of man producing this human condition. That's it. That's the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. And as a result of that, the entire human condition is involved in sin. And so the point, everyone's under sin because of that fall. We are no better than anybody else. And in case you think you are the exception to the rule, Paul says, none righteous, not even you. Not you, not you, not you. Nobody. Because he knows already that there will be some sitting back saying, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm really not that bad. No, not even you. You didn't have a choice. You didn't have a choice. You were born into sin. What you do have a choice is accepting Christ. That's the choice that you and I have. So in verse 11, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks. So he goes on to show what is in man's heart. And what is in man's heart is ignorance of God. Then he says, there is none who seeks after God. This is indifference. And this is an all-encompassing and sweeping statement. There's none who seeks after God. We have ignorance and we have indifference towards God. It's an all-encompassing sweeping statement, kind of like, Jesus' statement of, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. All sweeping. Puts all religions on charge, saying you can't come in any other fashion. All encompassing. So now, how can Paul make this kind of statement? It's amazing. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible teach us about seeking God? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. If you seek me, you will find me. If you search for me with all of your heart, doesn't that count? What about the most sincere Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhist? Aren't they genuinely seeking God in their own way? And what about all the religions of the world? Aren't they just another path to God? Nope. The Bible declares it right here. The Bible just told us nobody seeks after God. Nobody. Mankind does not search for God or truth. He suppresses it and finally turns to idolatry. He showed us that in chapter 1, 18 through 23. Religion teaches that you have to rise up to God. 
but you and I cannot find God. Well, what does this all mean? He found us. He comes to us. He draws us to Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. John 6, tells us, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of God's Word. You only begin seeking God after your life has been changed by Christ. That's when you begin seeking God. That's the regenerate person. It was the ignorant and indifferent heart that he drew and touched and changed. And you know it's been changed when you begin crying out like the psalmist. Thirsting. Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. Do you cry out like that? Psalm 63.1 O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Does your heart search for the Lord like that? It ought to as a believer in Jesus Christ. Amazing how much work the Holy Spirit does to get us to utter these words, to take us from a place of ignorance and indifference and put seeking in our hearts. Does that not tell you the love of God in Jesus Christ, who is willing that none should perish, that all should come to repentance? And let me tell you, if you've ever had a doubt about God's love for you, you can put it down. That's His love for you. He comes after you. He seeks you. And that conviction you feel inside sometimes, that's His love for you. Keeping you with Him. They all have turned aside and become unprofitable in verse 12. The word for turned aside means leaning in the wrong direction. Militarily speaking, a soldier caught running in the wrong direction, a deserter. The human inclination is to turn or walk and even run away from God. Do you remember Adam and Eve when they sinned? Hey, before they were open, walking around with nothing on. Hey, all is good. As soon as they sinned, what did they realize? I'm naked. I need to hide. I need to cover myself. And what did God say? Who told you? Who told you about that? Ah, we have sinned. Naturally, they begin to hide from God. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And in our natural state, it's our natural inclination. Without a shepherd, we go off on our own way. The only way anyone can come to God is if they admit they are lost. And that takes forsaking your own self, your own life. And he goes on that they all have become unprofitable. Or the word uh, in another way is useless. Now the Greek word translated here for useless was used to describe sour milk. It was good for nothing. You couldn't drink it. You couldn't churn it for butter. It was unedible, useless. According to God's word, fallen man runs from God and has become rancid. It's therefore in a state good for nothing. And so we have the condition of fallen man. What a charge. 
As we move into the conversation in verses 13 and 14, it says, Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So we've looked at the fallen condition. Now we brought to the conversation the speech of fallen man. Quoting from Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 143, Psalm 10, 7. He's pulling all these together, marshalling them all together. And he's saying a spiritually dead heart can only have spiritually dead speech and words. The throat is to the heart as is a dead rotting corpse is to a grave. This is a picture of an open grave with a decaying body inside that's uncovered. And you get all the smells with it. That's what he's saying. It's on display for all to see, and it's rancid. And then he says they practice deceit. In other words, it's a way of baiting a hook to deceive a fish. The imperfect Greek tense here of this verb tells us that it's continual. So they continue to do this throughout all of time. It locks it in. Fallen man makes lying and deceit a habitual part of everyday life. And sometimes people become so manipulative that they don't even realize that they're doing it anymore. It just becomes a part of their very life. And then he mentions the asps or the adder snake. The fangs of such a deadly snake would lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when he throws his head to strike, the fangs that are hollow drop down. When the snake bites, the fangs press the sack of deadly poison that are hidden under the lips, injecting the venom into the victim. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's venom. It's deadly. Heart is desperately wicked. James tells us that the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. He calls the tongue a fire, a world of iniquity. It is so set among our members, he says, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. He tells us that, it, that we bless our God and Father with it, and with it that we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. Proverbs 10.32 The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverted. Proverbs 15.2 the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. And Proverbs 15, 28, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. All this to say that a person's character will inevitably show in their conversation. Fallen man. Desire for others will only be criticism, defamation, hoping for their destruction, hoping that they will stumble and fall, hoping for everything to go wrong in their lives. In other words, the desire of the heart of a fallen, ungenerate man will be for the destruction of other person, a group of people, and that person will be vocal about it. They will hope for the destruction of others. The speech of those without God is like the odor from an open grave. Sometimes it's filthy, sometimes it's deceiving, 
Sometimes it is as deadly as a snake bite. So we've now seen the condition and the conversation. And now we see the conduct, what their life produces. What do they look like in the real world? This is what we'll look at in verses 15 and 17. It says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Here, the great apostle is quoting from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. The fallen state of man will demonstrate this through his conduct. He is a self-seeker out for himself, and his very life will reflect that. Just look at the history of our nation. Look at the history of the world. You'll see it everywhere. Look at what's going on in the world right now. Are things getting better? No, they're getting worse. Look at wars. James 4, 1 and 2 tells us, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You fight and you war. Do we really know what's going on in wars? Do we really know what the true fight is about? Do we know what these war machines are fighting about? I mean, maybe they're handing each other tons of money just because of money. Greed. That's what it's all about. Man loves violence. Man is greedy. That's the fact of the natural man. We have seen it all over the place, even in our history. In 1968, a man by the name of Will Durant wrote in his book, uh, Lessons from History. He says this, In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Wow. And I'm sure the numbers are even greater now. During World War II, it was estimated that it took $225,000 to kill one enemy soldier. Crazy. The Scottish evangelist Robert Haldane wrote, The most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. Animals kill to eat. Men kill for greed. Take a look around you. Take a look within us. Do we not desire to sometimes hate people? And what does Jesus say about that in our hearts? It produces murder. We've murdered them already. We have to be careful. This is the state of fallen man. And so, Paul goes to God's Word to begin bringing down the gavel of the righteous judge. And he reads the indictments. It gives us the picture of what the fallen, unregenerate humankind looks like in condition, in conversation, and in conduct. And with all of that, we have the indictment. So we've had the arraignment, we've had the indictment, and now we come to the motive. And the motive very simply found in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every indictment must have a motive. What drove someone to do all of these things? It is a lack of the fear of God before their eyes. This, of course, goes to Psalm 36, 1 
And then you must read the whole thing to get the entire picture. We don't have time to do that, but go read it. See, all humans are put under the x-ray of God because he looks into the heart. And fallen, unregenerate man has no fear of God. God has no value in their lives. And while the world thinks we have come to this apex of civilization through evolution, God's word is contrary to that. It declares that we have fallen deeper and deeper into depravity. That's what it declares. The world systems proclaims we are, we are robed and well when we are not. God's word cries above the self-deceived crowd that we are not okay. We say, like it does in Revelations 3.17, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But God says you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We have guilt because we have sin. And if it's not dealt with as sin, then we'll deal with it incorrectly. So we have a life full of people living condemned. The motive is their lack of the fear of God. They just don't believe, even with all the advantages that we've had. This leads us to the verdict. And some don't even know, because maybe the church hasn't been out there doing its job. Maybe we're not. We need to examine our own hearts. As we come to the verdict here, as we begin to wrap up, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So here the prosecution rests. The arguments aired tight. All is proven through God's word that everyone is a sinner under judgment. That is why it says every mouth is stopped. So we have the verdict, but what's missing from this courtroom scene? A defense. There's no defense. There's a reason why there's no defense, because there's no defense. All are guilty. Before the defense can put up an argument, it has to have a defense, but everybody's stopped. There is such a thing called a summary judgment in a court of law that the judge would rule in favor of the accused because a lack of material facts. He would get up and say, not enough evidence, judgment. This is a summary judgment in reverse. The defendant cannot defend itself because there is no defense. He's defenseless. The evidence is so overwhelming, so 100% accurate, all the defense can do is rest. He has no argument. All mouths are shut, he says. Remember with me again at the beginning of the study, we talked about the criminals on the cross on each side of Jesus. Here's a good picture. Luke 23, 19-41 says, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And with that accusation, the criminal that was blaspheming God, his mouth was shut. He has no defense. None whatsoever. The law will not save. It leads to the knowledge of sin. 
you have that advantage. It's the very purpose of it. This is why it's an advantage. It meant to bring you to a place of no defense. That's what we must get to. I have no defense. What a great place to be. Are we at that place today? Has God, has His Word come to us in such a way to shut us up? Or do we find ourselves continuing over and over to argue our points? Well, it's because of this. Well, it's because of that. No, it's because of me. It's because of me. Oh man, a humble and contrite heart, he will not despise. You come to the Lord that way. Oh man, he will not turn his back on you or me. It's like Job in chapter 40, verse 1 through 4. It says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Because Job was spouting all kinds of nonsense in his agony that he was going through. And God says, hey, who are you to rebuke me? And what was Job's response? He says, behold, God, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. This is the place we all need to get to when we realize our need for Christ. That's why Paul goes through all of this. Let me leave you with this prayer. I, at the beginning of the message, gave to you a prayer that just sounded completely and utterly defeated. Let me leave you with this prayer. O oh God, may thy spirit speak in me that I may speak to thee. I have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I am undeserving, but I look to thy tender mercy. I am full of infirmities and wants and sin. Thou art full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one odious room to another, walked in a no man's land of dangerous imaginations, pried into the secrets of my fallen nature. I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am in myself. I have no green shoot in me, nor fruit, but thorns and thistles. I am a fading leaf that wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be hewn down and burnt. Lord, dost thou have mercy on me? Thou hast struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false God of self, and I lie in pieces before thee. But thou hast given me another master and Lord, thy son Jesus, and now my heart is turned towards holiness. He doesn't leave it. He goes on to it, which is going to be where we pick up in verse 21 of chapter 3, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's been getting to. That's what we've been looking at, and I can't wait. If you haven't accepted Christ, if you're going through something, hey, you know between you and the Lord, and right where you're at, wherever you're at, you make amends with Jesus Christ right now. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. Thank you and praise you for your word, Lord. It's so mighty. It's piercing. We thank you that we have it. We thank you that you speak loud and clear to us, and I pray, God, 
It is my heart's desire like Paul's, Lord, that people would hear the message, the good news. Lord, that we would see our need for you. Whether we think we're good, the Bible says, there are none righteous, no, not one. Or nobody. So that unregenerate person whose heart is pounding right now, wondering what all this means, all it means is simply that you've chased them down and you finally caught them. Lord, we didn't come seeking you, you sought us. And we're so grateful for that. And we thank you that you continue to pursue your image in fallen man, that you don't leave us hanging. Judgment will come one day, but Lord, not yet. Just one more, Father. Just one more, that's what we ask. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.